0: How do you do when the rain gets under your skin Leaking tadpoles pools like it's a whim And what do you say when it's all gone sideways and fools And your heart won't beat with the rules Little backing like a shoot on the path You're pushing past these boulders pushing past these
1: boulders. Welcome to the Bridge to Branches podcast. You and your entirety are welcome here, no matter who you are, where you're from, or what you've been through. On the Bridge to Branches podcast, we believe every mental health experience is valid and has power. If you are tending to your mental health, you are smart and brave. If life is a tree, mental health is the bridge from the roots to the branches, connecting where we've been and what we've been through to its impact on the world, spanning outwards. Mental health is the bridge to your destiny in this world. Join us in talking about it. Content warning for this episode. In this episode, we discuss sensitive topics such as various potentially triggering delusions and superstitions, self harm, and sexual trauma. Hi, everyone. This is Alex. Thanks so much for being here. Joining us today for a conversation around mental health, undiagnosed issues, and other topics is Emily Sioma? Emily is an activist from Southeast Michigan and a graduate from the University of Michigan. After receiving her bachelor's degree in women's studies, Emily went on to become Miss Michigan 2018, where she advocated for survivors of sexual violence at the 2019 Miss America competition. Since then, she has started to pursue her career ambitions of becoming an advocate for reproductive rights and sexuality education. We hope you enjoy episode four. Before we get started, can I ask your preferred pronouns that you use?
2: Yeah, I use she, her, and hers. Awesome. Awesome.
1: So, um, yeah, let's kind of just get into it. One of the first questions i like to ask is just around mental health as it's the topic of the podcast. How do you kind of define mental health and how do you relate to it?
2: So, for me, mental health, I think, has always kind of been like a, a broad topic that I hear a lot of people talking about because being kind of involved in the pageant world, a lot of people took on their platforms or the philanthropic thing that they were doing during their year, and they talked about mental health, but I never really saw a lot of the in-depth kind of like talking about the the darker side of mental health and actually dealing with mental health, being someone that um, has a couple different diagnoses. So for me, mental health has been kind of discovering along the way how I interact with it, and it changes the way that I interact with other people around me who are in the field, working and advocating for mental health um, awareness or mental health um, treatment and wholeness. And yeah, it's kind of been a lifelong journey figuring out what it means to me. So I don't even know if I have a real definition um, to give right now. I think it's always kind of a working definition.
1: Definitely. Definitely. No, that's great. I think that a lot of people's own experiences are what kind of lend to their definition. So. Um, How did your mental health journey, or when did your mental health journey really begin?
2: I think I first became very aware of uh, my emotions as my mental health when I was about 14, 15 years old. I really struggled a lot in school, not academically, but relating to a lot of my peers because growing up as an only child and really being only surrounded by adults, I came to communicate with people as an adult and expected the same. And when I was met in school by, you know, by my peers not treating me as an adult or not being able to converse with people in that way, I understood, but then being met by adults treating me as a child and speaking to me as a child, um, I really didn't know how to respond. And that's when I realized I had a lot of emotional responses to things that to a lot of other people, you know, maybe wouldn't have elicited such a response. So when I was 15, I had, you know, really expressed that I wasn't feeling well and I was always very emotional and I had gotten to the point where I realized I was maybe dealing with depression. I had had um, a little bit of an experience with self-harm and it got to the point where my mom asked me if if I was okay with her taking me to the emergency department because she was very worried that I was going to really injure myself, really hurt myself when I had expressed some of these desires to. And so I, I feel very lucky that I was able to open up to her about it and get kind of the immediate care that I needed to realize that I wasn't, like, what is it, neurotypical that what I was experiencing wasn't something that everyone else was experiencing. And so it's been kind of a journey from 15 and now being 25, um, realizing and seeing different providers that I was diagnosed with generalized anxiety, major depressive disorder, and had had, I guess, dabbled in a little bit of obsessive-compulsive behaviors, as my therapist told me. And so kind of coming to terms with the fact that there really isn't a cure for any of this, but there's constant treatment for all of these things, and there's constant um, self-work that I can be doing, Um, educating myself on how to take care of myself, um, has been a 10-year process to now, and I know will be a lifelong journey.
1: Totally. I struggled with um, OCD as well, along with depression and anxiety early on. Um, That seems to be something that's diagnosed around that age Mm -hmm. quite a bit. I
2: wasn't I wasn't actually diagnosed when I was younger because I didn't realize that the behaviors I was exhibiting it was at night when I when my parents had gone to bed and so no one was watching me kind of go through these rituals and I kind of thought it was just like oh I'm just very afraid of the dark there people always have these like weird feelings about being alone at night or like being in your room at night and it wasn't until I was talking with my therapist probably less than a year ago when she was like do you you know psychology? You studied, you know, women's studies. You had to take classes. Mm-hmm. Do you know what this sounds like? I had no idea. And she's like, "It sounds like you had unaddressed, undiagnosed obsessive compulsive behaviors when you were a child." And to me, like that shook my world because I'm like, "Okay, I can handle anxiety. I can handle depression. But obsessive compulsive behaviors? I'm like, I never thought that was something, and I never, I didn't recognize it. And now that I've grown out of most of them, and um, it was kind of man, if I would have been able to be open, or if I would have had more people talking about that OCD doesn't look like counting your pencils all the time, it doesn't look like having to touch a doorknob a bunch of times. Um, if I would have had that kind of representation, maybe I would have been able to reach out beforehand and um, get treatment for a lot of the anxiety that that was causing me.
1: Totally. Yeah, access is a big is a big deal. Yeah. Um, so what were your symptoms of OCD?
2: For me, it was a lot of rituals around sleeping um, because, and what I realized that for it to be an obsessive compulsive behavior and a diagnosis, that there has to be some sort of ritualistic behavior surrounding it, like that surrounding a certain topic for me, which was sleep, and it had to be followed by some sort of like feeling of fear or danger. and For me, it was I felt like if I didn't do these certain things didn't sleep a certain way, when the vent was going with a light on, with all of these things going on, that someone was going to murder my parents and then come for me. And it was never in like a way that I was like very scared of it. It was just kind of a thing, I'm like, nope, I know this is what's going to happen. Totally. I'm not yeah. afraid of it. I know what's going to happen, so I have to do it. And if I don't do it, I was so anxious I couldn't sleep. Yeah. And it, it was weird for me to recognize and to go back and reflect and be like, holy cow. <laughs> well, that's very jarring for a right, seven-year-old right. to like be okay with the thought of like someone's going to murder my parents and then they're going to come and murder me like it wasn't out of it wasn't based out of fear and it didn't feel rational but it also wasn't something that I could rationalize to the point of convincing myself out of and that's when my therapist was like you know those might be obsessive compulsive behavior so to know I don't have a diagnosis diagnosis of obsessive compulsive disorder but she recognized that I had some behaviors and tendencies that you know if addressed when I was younger might have led to a diagnosis Um, but
1: right right
2: I've gotten to the point where as an adult I'm able to talk to myself and have those conversations with within my own head where I'm like okay you know you can wean yourself off of doing these things the anxiety and the the trigger wasn't so bad that I as an adult can't train myself to not feel anxious about those things I still have those thoughts sometimes but I have to like talk myself out and be like you know what that's not real that's not rational it's okay right and then eventually I do fall asleep so
1: yeah it's interesting I had such a similar experience although it wasn't quite around like that story wasn't the the story wasn't the same for me but around like the type of thing where I'd I'd go into my thoughts and it would be like a if I don't do this, then this will happen type thing, and I had never recognized that that alone was the OCD, like, symptom, kind of, Mm -hmm. um, or, like, what would the explanation behind the symptom um, that we kind of tell ourselves, but, uh, yeah, I would, I would count, I would count, like, letters and words, and I think it was always around, and, like, I would count numbers, and, add up numbers to try to have them equal, like an even number. Like, do very kind of, um, have these, like, nuanced behaviors. And I still kind of do them now. Like, I'm not medicated for OCD. And it's, again, with being an adult, like, it's not something that really affects my day to day or really gets in the way of things but i do like little things where i'm like if i don't do this then i'll do this so i just do the thing really quick and whether it's like step on a crack or like mm-hmm. you know like
2: it's weird because you're trying to like rationalize within like at the same time that you're thinking like it's i get that this isn't a rational behavior but you're like okay just rationalize this and make it make it equal out if it's about numbers, make it equal the thing you need it to. And for me, it was like my position in sleep. I'm like, if I'm sleeping with my head facing in this direction and my back facing this way, and then all of these things together, that will, and for me, when I explain this, I'm like, man, I feel like I I sound a little wild because I'm like, it would create a force field around me and also around my parents. And I just thought it was a weird childhood fantasy, but it was me actually as a child doing these things to you know protect myself from harm and protect my family from harm. And so that's why I get a little bit touchy now that I'm like recognizing when people are very like oh oh yeah I'm so OCD about that. And I'm kind of in a very like a non uh, I'm not trying to be harsh or not trying to be hostile about it but I'm like oh, so when you get this, do you feel like you're going to die or your family's going to die or like something really bad's going to happen? They're right. like, well, no. Right. I'm like, yeah, maybe be a little bit more hesitant because that's like the real world symptom of people who experience obsessive compulsive disorder, obsessive compulsive behaviors, where it's like they feel some sort of imminent doom. doom. Maybe not yeah. everyone. And I don't mean to speak for everybody, but for me, like realizing as a child, like I felt like I was going to die. My parents were going to die if I don't do these things. It gave me much more of a realistic view of what people who very severely or even moderately as an adult experience obsessive compulsive disorder and behaviors um, and, and the anxiety that they feel day to day doing behaviors and doing things that a lot of people would consider just like uh, a bump in the road right? Or something that's just kind of annoying
1: yeah and the whole point of this podcast I think is around talking about is to talk about mental health situations and experiences that we have um so as to give other folks permission to kind of do the same and to let people know that it's okay. And you talking about this is kind of giving me permission to even talk a little bit more about my OCD now, which does relate to a feeling of imminent doom now that you say that phrase. Like, that's often what I what I think of. And, you know, again, it's not something that, like, gets in the way of my life happening, but it's interesting. So, yeah, I wonder... I wonder. Sometimes I wonder if, like, everyone has those little kind of quirks, or if it really is just like, I mean, you and I are similar in so many ways. Mm -hmm. I think that we know that by Mm -hmm. now. And (laughs) I'm (laughs) like,
2: is it is it us? Is it our diagnoses? And And it's not to like pathologize every little kind of thing that we do, but for me, getting kind of a. Like pathologizing a behavior that I had experienced helped me to better put it into perspective. Right. This isn't what everyone else experiences. It's okay, but recognize that you can improve on these behaviors and get to a place that's a that's a normal for you that it helps you better live your life. Totally. That gives you better sleep at night because you're not, when you don't do these certain things, laying awake, feeling anxious about it. Even if right, you're rationalizing right. like, I know that will never happen. There's still like, anxiety doesn't care about what's rational and what's not. Right. Anxiety just does its thing for me. And I'm like, even if it's just like a little like dripping in the back of my head and it's incessant and it's to the point where I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't sleep. And, and so being able to talk about it and give myself permission to say, okay, if my licensed professional would tell me that this is what I'm experiencing and it's something that's not something everyone else experiences, it made me, it made me feel a little bit better about experiencing it, knowing like, okay, not everyone goes through this, that's okay, if I'm dealing with it, like, Right. I can deal with it now that I can put a name to it. Yeah, now that I experience it in a, in a society or in a group of people that experience kind of something very unique.
1: Right, completely. It's like we all experiencing some, we all are experiencing something, and it's different. Everything that we're experiencing is different from each other, but we're all experiencing something. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of, like... The message around mental health to be to be taken from this whole topic is is that everyone experiences something at some point or another. So whether or not it's you know having the feeling of imminent doom that you have to do some little quirky kind of thing in your life and um, give into it, or or whether it's you know it is depression or it's anxiety and. Everyone is going through. Everyone experiences something at some time or another. So, yeah, I think the other the other um, question I have, because you mentioned anxiety too, just in your in the last minute, if you f- is if you feel like anxiety is kind of an inhibitory emotion that crops up, and I guess I'm kind of saying that I do feel this way, but <laughs> saying it like <laughs> you this, to, yeah, totally. <laughs> I I mean, I guess I'll just say straight up. Like, I feel like anxiety is an inhibitory emotion that is really just blocking us from facing or feeling a fear. Mm -hmm. So, whether that be anxiety that comes up because of the fear that we have of an impending doom and whatever that looks like to us, impending doom can mean different things for different people. Or it's it is, you know, the ultimate fear. I think that all people kind of experience, which is of death. Um, or if it's sort of little things in the day-to-day, like, is that why we all experience anxiety? You know, is that why people experience... I think about that a lot. I think about, like, shame and guilt and anxiety being and frustration and all these things being inhibitory emotions of pain and of fear, so...
2: Well, I think, for me, when I, when I think about anxiety specifically because it is something, and I use this term a lot, it's been pathologized in a way that's like there's a treatment for it, there's a cure for it, I think a lot of people situationally can feel anxious about stuff, but more I've had to recognize the difference between when I feel anxiety and when I'm just feeling stress or when I'm feeling nerves. Yeah. And I think that when I'm feeling stress and nerves and very situationally I'm experiencing things that are in, like contextually it makes sense to experience these things. It's very different from when I feel my generalized anxiety that is something that actually gets in the way of me leading my normal what I would hope to be a more normal baseline life is because it will be ruminating thoughts that are so intrusive that they stop me from being able to focus on the task at hand or when I go to bed at night I replay my day not just in a way that's like I'm reviewing what I've done but I'm focusing in on things that are so minuscule and unimportant that I recognize I almost and sometimes Throughout this, I will probably talk about how I have a, a person that is me, and I have a part of me that is my anxiety, my depression, my um, kind of like those intrusive thoughts, uh, and more of them like the negative dark emotions, and I don't recognize them as being myself. I recognize that I myself experience and feel stress and feel nervousness, but anxiety is a different part of me. that. Creeps in and almost takes control over my rational mind. And no matter how much I can rationalize through something and talk myself through something, there's this other part of me that doesn't let it happen, that sometimes wins over. And so, thinking about my anxiety, and I guess I can better articulate it with depression, is that when I'm just feeling sad, I can recognize because I'm like, okay, I'm feeling this emotion. But when I feel depressed, I actually feel a physical weight on my body. I notice that my posture changes and I slump and it's not something like, oh, I just fixed my posture, I feel better, I actually feel that physical weight pulling me down, and that's when I can recognize the difference between my symptoms of feeling sadness, feeling guilt, feeling whatever that dark emotion is, and actually feeling my depression, actually feeling my anxiety. I get much more of a a long-lasting physical response to this ongoing emotion. So I think getting back to the question, For me, there's a big difference between stress inhibiting my life, sadness inhibiting my life, and getting in the way of things because I can not talk my way out of them, but I can process those. But anxiety and depression, I don't feel as though there's as easy a way to talk myself out of a depressive episode or to rationalize an anxious or an anxiety attack that I'm having because it's almost like those feelings... Don't care. They don't. They don't care about what Emily feels. They are just seeping in and taking control of what I am feeling, no matter what I try to do about it. Right. Right. And I. And sometimes I feel like unless you have it, have depression, have anxiety, um, I have have noticed that some people don't understand when I'm um, using that analogy of like it's me, but it's not me that's feeling these things. I. I have notice that some people don't always get that, recognize that, but I had someone explain it to me one time that they feel like their depression isn't them, they feel like their anxiety isn't them, and if you recognize something you're experiencing in that, what I'm saying, like it's, it's a, a was liberating for me almost, because I finally had words to put to, like, but this just doesn't feel like me, it doesn't feel like Emily, it doesn't feel like me. Right,
1: right. So, Yeah, I mean, I tend to think that things like anxiety, some will say like stress and sadness, those are parts of of almost daily life, right? Like pretty much every day you're going to experience some stress, you're going to experience maybe some sadness. Um, They're bigger and wider at different times. But with anxiety, I tend to think like I have just this... This feeling that anxiety is this this entity that it is it does feel like outside of me or something that can come in and and kind of like show me something. It shows me like information about what I'm fearful of. Mm -hmm. To kind of like just go into that for a second, Um, like it it allows me to recognize like oh if I'm if I have anxiety about you know um, the long drive that I have to do later that day, it's because I'm fearful ultimately of the fact that it's possible I could get in an accident. Like, that's always a possibility. So there's there's some fear around something happening that hasn't come true yet. So it's like living in the future. So I think there's an ultimately like a, a signal there that you have to come back to the present. I think that's why meditation and these things like um, that are contemplative practices that bring you back to the present moment are so important and really help with anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, as far as uh, depression goes, um, when I felt depressed in the past, I felt actually periods of um, total apathy, and I have like like the feeling around when you say like your shoulders are slumped, and you feel it more like in your body, like it's this dead weight almost yeah. in you. Like yeah, depression can be can be really really
2: challenging. It's, yeah, way. I almost. Because I do have a tendency to disassociate when I'm having, like, episodes of depression. And it almost feels as though, like, me as, like, a soul or a being is being squeezed in my own body. And there's, like, all this empty space within my own, like, physical body that I'm not allowed to take up anymore. Me as Emily because my depression is pushing it down and so it feels like even though I'm like correcting my posture it still feels like on the inside I'm being weighed down, I'm being pulled down, I'm kind of being pushed further and further inside of myself and I even notice that sometimes when I'm starting to feel really depressed or starting to ruminate on certain thoughts and become very anxious it's almost like me pulls back from my eyes and I'm watching myself Mm -hmm. from within my own head do things and it's a very it's a very weird feeling of thinking about mental health and your brain and how it controls even the sensations that you have physically and how it can change the way you relate to the physical space that you take up in life and in the world but also that space that you as a soul or as a being takes up within your own body and how much control you have over that and yeah so it's, it's been an interesting ongoing like as i've um, gotten on certain medications gotten on my ssris to try and curb some of the symptoms to i guess do with therapy to get a new normal get back to that baseline um, it's given me a lot of new language and a lot of new perspective to become very self-aware of how my mental health affects my physical health or even just how it affects my ability to take up space physically within myself.
1: Totally. Totally. So, you mentioned language. Um, Let's talk about the term mental illness. Um, How do you feel about that term? Do you relate to it? If you don't, what language do you use rather than mental illness?
2: Mm -hmm. Um, I kind of like swayed back and forth mostly because illness implies that there's a cure to something and, you know, illness it has a lot of it implies a lot of things that i don't think necessarily fit with mental illness because i had a diagnosis of ptsd at one point and realizing that within trauma your recovery is not linear that you go through a lot of phases and it's something like trauma is something that sits with you for the rest of your life in certain ways and maybe you can get to a point where you never have symptoms again or you never have flare ups where you're very anxious or depressed or you have post traumatic stress symptoms Um, So I guess I've never understood the weight of the term mental illness until I was trying to describe it to someone like, do you look at me as ill? Mm -hmm. Do you look at me as someone who's experienced some sort of sickness? Like you would look at someone who has the flu or like someone who has something that's maybe less curable, like cancer. And that was the first time I realized that the term mental illness, when we talk about it in in bills, and in legislation, and in the hospital setting, that it's something that you really focus on the term illness, but I think in our everyday life when we talk more about mental illness, we focus more on the health aspects, and that it's overall health, and I think that even having a diagnosis of a mental illness, that it's not so much about the illness, that it's now more about your overall health as a a being. And that just in the our physical health, like being active and going to the gym, it fluctuates all the time. When we're on a diet, and eating healthier, and we have a routine, it's the same way that we're taking care of our physical body. We also need to take care of our um, of our mental health. Completely. Almost thinking about like people with diabetes. You don't. I don't look at people with diabetes as like type one diabetes that you're born with. I think that's the type. Of diabetes that you're born with but the type of diabetes that you're born with I don't look at those people as having an illness I look at them as having a disorder that they have to treat and they have to find ways to lead a more normal life and implement all of these certain strategies to get them to that like more typical body um, and to exist in the world that we live in in a way that you know allows them to be kind of on an even playing field and that's kind of how I feel about my mental health is that I have all of these things that sometimes feel like they're pulling me down from that baseline level that everyone else lives at. And I'm finding ways to coping through coping mechanisms and therapy and certain types of medication um, that I'm finding ways to get myself back up to that baseline that I think everyone else is kind of playing at. Right. And right. so it's, I don't really like the term mental illness because I think it has different weight when it's used in different ways, but I instead like to focus much more on the mental health side of things as a whole, being because we all have mental health, not everyone has a diagnosis, but we all have health, mental health that we have to take care of and we have to be aware of.
1: Completely, completely. I like um, the path to mental wellness rather than illness.
2: Yeah.
1: Like you know, if you're if you're attending to your mental health, you're on the path towards mental wellness and to into a higher state of mental health. Um, so I think that's important to know. And yeah, again, I appreciate the note of that every person has mental health. Um, so why do you think people are so hesitant to? relate to sometimes their diagnoses or to say that they have a mental illness. Outside of everything that you just mentioned, like why is there so much stigma around these words and this topic? Why do you think people are so afraid?
2: (laughs) I I have a hard time Saying why because I sometimes don't understand. I recognize now that I'm someone that's very open, and right. I'm always sharing. I feel like my way of communicating is sharing my personal stories to help people gain a better understanding of who I am and how I make decisions, why I make decisions, why I do the things that I do, to give people a better understanding of me. Um, and so I'm I'm sometimes very confused with why people aren't more open to sharing their diagnoses because or at least relating to or identifying or accepting their diagnosis or their mental illness just because I don't experience that. And so trying to be more empathetic, I can completely understand how when you're parts of certain communities that mental health is viewed or mental illness is viewed as a weakness, not as just a different... A different way of living or a different thing that you're living with. It's viewed as a weakness, an actual illness that needs to be fixed, and you're lesser than or weaker than because of these things that you experience. Um, and so I can understand that wanting to be an insider in the community that you're a part of, trying to stray away from talking about mental illness and talking about mental health. Um, so I think because there's it's just kind of like a vicious cycle. Because we don't talk about it, there's stigma. Because there's stigma, we don't talk about it. Because we're not as open and accepting, there's stigma. Because there's stigma, we're not as open and accepting. And so I think it's going to take a lot of people sharing their stories and a lot of people who are prominent within their own individual communities that have capital to be able to say... I'm experiencing this that will allow people who maybe don't have as much social capital within their community to feel okay at first within themselves to accept it and then to be more open with their communities about it.
1: Completely. I totally agree. Um, So yeah, I think that talking about stigma and mental health stigma is the first step to dismantling it Mm -hmm. and just deconstructing it. Um, And I think that there's the point to be made that those who have struggled with mental health experiences and mental health issues the people that we have on this podcast have all struggled with mental health issues and crises and so on and so forth at some time or another and are all doing amazing awesome things in the world so i think that's part of a big part of destigmatizing the stigma and mm-hmm. the mental health topic in general so let's talk a little bit about what you are doing now in the world and how mental health has impacted that journey.
2: Yeah, so thank you for you know facilitating this and having so many people on that are sharing not the ways that their mental health is limiting them, but the way that their mental health has inspired the work that they do or impacted or influenced the work they do or just changed the lens of how they do their work. Um, yes. and, and I will say, so I'm Um, a survivor of sexual assault and so for anyone listening I will talk a little bit about assault and so just a content warning beforehand Um, but a lot of the work that I do is on the side of supporting survivors. I think we do a lot um, in regards of talking about prevention, talking about awareness and statistics of sexual violence in our country, in our communities, but I found as a survivor myself that there wasn't as much of a community focus on how to support survivors long after they have experienced assault because as I had kind of briefly mentioned earlier trauma is something that sits with you especially when you're a survivor when you become a victim and ultimately I choose to call myself a survivor of sexual assault that never goes away I will never be someone in the future who has not experienced sexual assault and sexual violence and with that in mind It's understanding that though we can treat symptoms of PTSD if you're ever diagnosed with it, though we can treat symptoms of anxiety or depression that stem off of um, the experience and the trauma that you have had, there might be times 20 years into the future where you find that there's a new trigger that you've never experienced before that brings up these old memories of the trauma that you've had.
1: It's back to healing not being linear, right? Yeah, exactly.
2: And it's kind of all full circle in that you know there might be a time in the future when people have kind of not forgotten but there's kind of this this mentality of it's been years why do you why are you still sensitive about that it's you've had all this time why isn't there all this closure that you have why are you still talking about it and that's what i wanted to push our communities to do better is is figuring out how do we support survivors long term and really starting community level conversations about how do you support a survivor of sexual violence in general? Because I think we do so much on knowing that it happens and uh, unfortunately talking so much about prevention and putting the onus on women or putting onus on the people who are experiencing sexual violence at a higher rate um, that I think the conversation of how do we as a community support them kind of gets brushed off to the side. And so for me, a lot of the work that I have done has been centered around three questions. How do you support or how will you support a survivor when they disclose their assault to you? Uh, what is the next step? So what resources are in your area that if someone were to disclose to you, what would you tell them to do next? Are you aware of them? Are you educated enough on them to be able to provide them with the next step? And the final question is where? where are the gaps that you see in resources or where where are people slipping through the cracks because i i find that there are so many organizations doing great work but they don't know that they're not servicing some people simply because they don't know and it's up to us to see that maybe we have all these resources in one area but there are a lot of survivors that are further away geographically they can't access it or maybe we have great work being done for survivors who are identifying as one gender but we're not having as much work in a certain area people who are genderqueer people who are transgender and it's being able to identify as a community where there are gaps in the resources that we already have available that will help us to either reallocate or to create new resources that we might need
1: that's amazing emily thank oh, you thank for you. doing this work in the world thank yeah it's huge um, so, it really sounds like your experiences that resulted in you really having to tend to your mental health in a big way led you to that.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it was because I recognized experiencing it, and I can't fault people who don't know what they don't know, because that's kind of when you realize that because people aren't talking about it, until you experiencing, experience it yourself, if you have never heard someone talk about supporting a survivor 15 years down the road, you wouldn't think. About that. And I think that's kind of how mental health and mental wellness goes is that if you don't hear people talking about how they're experiencing something or this group of people are experiencing something and they need help in these certain ways, you don't know until you know you don't know. I know that sounds very convoluted, but until we start talking about this and having conversations within our communities, which is my big my big goal is not for me to be educating everyone, but for me to be educating people and inspiring them to bring these conversations back to their groups, whether it's their families, it's their places of work, their places of worship, their place of education. Bringing these conversations, which I understand are very difficult, and it's kind of hard to bring it up at first because people don't want to talk about stuff that makes them feel uncomfortable. Right. We've got to start. We've got to have friction to start a fire. We'll you have to be pushing to talk about things that are difficult at first and talk about them in a way that's that's never damning or that's never hostile but in a way that's saying we as a community need to do better and taking the not the blame but taking the responsibility as a group instead of pointing fingers and saying well you need to fix this saying how do we how do I help all of us fix this how do I help you fix this problem and taking it on as a community I think will be much more beneficial and much more impactful than Trying to point the blame at whose fault it is that this is happening, but saying how do we as a community identify where the problems are and get people the help that they need?
1: That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. And by starting these conversations, they do become far-reaching, right? That's kind of like the branches of the tree, and like the you know the metaphor of the the name the name of the podcast, Bridge to Branches. Um, we talk about things, and our impact is completely unique as each of us are unique beings. And that impact touches another person or another person, and it, it reaches out infinitely and, and moves, moves outward. So yeah, that's really, really special. Um, is there anything you'd like to add, either about mental health or kind of your experiences with it, or um, how it's impacted a little bit more, other things that you might be doing in the world, or kind of just a, maybe a general mindset you have today?
2: Well, one thing I've, I've been thinking a lot about within my work with supporting survivors of sexual violence um, is the work of allies and how, you know, not everyone is going to experience sexual violence. Um, not everyone's going to experience um, a mental health diagnosis. That allies, and we as people who have experienced these things or have tangentially experienced these things can also be allies, but it's up to us as allies to do a lot of education or educating ourselves, that we can't always expect people who have experienced things that are very traumatizing or have experienced things that are um, not so easy to share to educate us all the time. So reaching out and, and listening to podcasts like this and reading books that are going to help you better support people within communities of trauma or within communities of mental health and mental wellness that... We need to take it on ourselves to do the best job we can, vetting the resources that we're finding, but doing this constant education to better ourselves, to help strengthen our communities. So know that we don't always have the answers, and it's okay to not know, and it's okay to be wrong, too. But if you're doing the work to constantly be listening to people who have experienced these things. And really, not just hear them for their stories and take for granted their education that they're giving you, but really listen to them. I think that's one of the most important steps that we can do in creating stronger communities, is recognizing that we don't always have the answers, but the best people to get those answers from, if they are willingly giving it to us, are the people who have experienced those things themselves.
1: That's beautiful, completely. And we do believe, or we do live in such a contentious, time right now so I think these conversations are even more important to be having and every opportunity to learn I think should be taken so I think that truly like obviously self-care and um, taking care of one's mental health when things do get a little intense is really important taking a step back and taking care of yourself taking care of oneself but every there's so many opportunities to learn about new ways to help yourself and to help other folks who are going through all sorts of different things. Yeah. So.
2: As I think, like I said, mental health and mental wellness for me is a working definition. I think life is a working definition. that I, I will never know everything and what I'm dead set on now might not be what I'm dead set on in five years or in five minutes and understanding that everything that I'm experiencing can be a learning opportunity maybe I won't learn what it means now, maybe I'll learn in the future, but it's, it's always kind of a working definition.
1: Beautiful. So true. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Emily, for coming on the episode.
2: Thank you. I appreciate all the work that you're doing, bringing this conversation to the forefront and allowing me a space to speak about my own experience.
1: Mental health affects us all. If you are feeling suicidal, please call the suicide hotline at 1-800-273-8255. Look down at your body, whisper, there is no home like you. Thank you, Rupi Kaur. Thank you to the city of Detroit where we record this podcast each week. To Ayla Nario for the use of her beautiful song and to our listeners who may be struggling with mental health issues, may this podcast serve as a light in what can often be a very dark night. Catch you next time on the Bridge to Branches podcast.